0: Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, new to the podcast, welcome. If you're a listener, welcome back. Really appreciate you being here, spending your time with us. This is episode 151. We're talking with Dr. Herman Ponzer. He's the author of a new book called Burn. Uh, it's actually not super new. It's been out for a few months now, and I have been hyping it up since its release. I picked it up as soon as it came out. And, uh, oh boy, one of my favorite science books that I've ever read. Um, and I've been waiting for this book to come out because I've been, had been reading Dr. Ponzer's work for some time now. And my, my brain exploded when I read the first paper uh, by him on the constrained energy model. So we're going to be talking about metabolism, energy expenditure, much more on this week's podcast. One of my favorite episodes to record, edit, make, etc. So really excited for you guys to listen to this one. Uh, A few announcements first, our two-day seminars are still going on. Our next one is in November at Alan Thrall's gym, Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California. So if you ever wanted to train at Alan's gym, maybe meet Alan and go to Barbell Medicine Seminar, you can knock it all out in one weekend in November. So link to that in the show notes below as well. Also, I've been steadily feeding you guys some of this new apparel that's about to drop. We've got a bunch of new shirts, a bunch of new gear coming out. It should be up on the website, available for purchase next week. So stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, all right. Without any further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast, episode 151 with Dr. Herman Ponzer.
1: Sure. I'm Herman Ponzer. I'm a professor at Duke and the author of a book called Burn, which just came out this spring. And um, I'm an evolutionary anthropologist and I focus on how our bodies evolved to burn energy. I
0: love it. Uh, just, you know, evolutionary anthropologist for those who don't know what exactly that is just a brief kind of overview uh what that entails
1: yeah sure so anthropology is the study of humans right which could be obviously that's a super broad uh you know (laughs) that's very broad so it can be cultural it can be you know cultural studies it can be archaeology it can be linguistics or it can be what i do which is the sort of human biology aspect of, of our of our species right how did how did we evolve how do our bodies work um and, you know, how does our sort of evolutionary past shape the way that they work today? And, and and how do we understand both ourselves, but also differences among people? That's that kind of thing. So human diversity, human biology is a big focus in, in anthropology. Um, and people who focus on those evolutionary questions like I do call ourselves evolutionary anthropologists. So my training is is from that looking at the human body from an evolutionary perspective, understanding how our deep past shapes the way that they work today. Uh,
0: yeah, I think when reading the book, Burn, it was heavily impressed upon me how much research that you're actually doing, like collecting data in the field, mm-hmm. uh, h- how much has been in the field versus in the lab where, at, at Duke, for example.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's in terms of my energy and, and, you know, it's about 50-50. In terms of the time, it ends up being, you know, you, you do field trips to the, you know, to the field in the summers typically. You're constrained by that because if you're a professor like me, um, you know, you got to, you got to teach. So you're teaching during the fall and the spring semesters. That takes up a lot of your time um, and kind of getting your field work prepped. And then you go and, and try to bang it out in the summer months.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there's some really cool stories. So I'm like, I wonder if there's any sort of uh, just, uh, you know, uh, not a vacation, but maybe (laughs) like a guided tour to Hadza land. I'd love to go check that out. Uh,
1: Well, let me say this about this. So people have, you know, contacted me about this and and the Hadza, who is the community we we work with um, a lot, especially in the book, we talk a lot about the Hadza work. Um, They are an amazing community of of hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania um, and there are some, you know, they live in camps kind of spread around this region of, of, Northern Tanzania near Lake Yossi. And there are some camps that take, that will, you know, you can, you can go to as a tourist and you can check them out. Um, and I would just caution people who do that. Uh, there are, you know, if we run a, a, a charity called, uh, the Hadza Fund, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D.org. And um, we have some suggestions on who you can go with if you want to do any kind of tourism with the Hadza with groups that are really responsible about how they do it. Um, some groups are not as, as responsible. And so uh, please do your homework before you go, because there, you can actually, you can go and, and hang out with the Hadza for a bit and kind of learn about their lives and, and their culture, but do it responsibly, please.
0: Oh, I like that. Okay. Um, and one thing, two th- or sorry, two things we ask all of our guests uh what side of type of exercise do they uh prefer and what book or books are they currently reading?
1: Oh so my favorite kind of exercise is rock climbing. Um so I try to get out a couple times a week if I can, although that doesn't always happen. Um sure. if I if I can't climb, I, I try to get out and uh and uh run. That's my other thing. Mountain biking is also fun. Right now I'm reading uh Carl Zimmer's what is it? Life's Edge. I can't remember the, the title. I think it's Life's Edge or something like that. And it's a really good one. And I'm reading the um, another book called Orphans of Davenport, which is all about how your body develops and your mind it develops, and the early science uh, behind figuring out that that you know IQ is not some static measure, but is actually this developmentally plastic trait. If you, if kids are you know in in environments that enrich them early on, you can have huge effects on IQ, which has been really fun to read that all that history, that science.
0: I'll add those to my reading list. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Okay. So again, if you haven't read Dr. Ponser's book yet, Burn, uh, it's definitely one of the ones we've been recommending um, on this podcast since it's come out. Uh, I wanted to have him on the podcast to actually talk about the main topic of that book, which is the constrained energy model. I came across this through one of your papers maybe two, two and a half years ago, and my mind exploded because... (laughs) well the, because there there are difficulties in reconciling um you know differences in observed outcomes if you were using the additive model of just you know resting energy expenditure plus diet induced energy expenditure plus activity yeah. uh energy expenditure, and you're like okay so it it's probably not that simple, but I don't have a better way to explain it, and it seems like everybody was using this additive model i mean, and still even now mm-hmm. you know the mm-hmm. uh, most calorie calculators, exercise uh, uh, science papers, et cetera. So just for the, our listeners, can you give us a, a background on what is the constrained energy model and how does this differ from the additive model?
1: Yeah. So again, so the additive model is that if I think about all the tasks my body does every day, basal metabolic rate, you know, resting, digestion, and I take my laundry list of activities, walking, running, whatever I did that day, and I add up all those costs of all those activities, I can add them up. And I'll get a real answer. I'll get the the accurate, correct answer of how many calories I've burned that day. Um, And that additive model makes a very simple prediction, which is that if I am more active, I'll burn more calories than when I'm less active. Or if I compare really active populations, they'll have high energy expenditures. And if I look at, you know, compared to really sedentary populations. Um, So the additive model makes intuitive sense. It's what everybody thinks is going on. Um, It's what I thought was going on. And then, what happened was I went and worked with the Hadza hunter-gatherer community. Uh, we were getting the first measurements of total energy expenditures in a hunting and gathering population. Um, humans evolved as hunter-gatherers, and so these living hunter-gatherer populations there aren't many left, but they're these really kind of invaluable reference uh, in reference points, basically, for understanding human physiology in that kind of a lifestyle um and so but they're super physically active um, they get more physical activity in a day than most americans get in a week and so we measured energy expenditures with the hadza men and women and we expected to see really high energy expenditures lots of calories per day and instead what we saw was that their total energy expenditures are no different than americans that was total mind-blowing for me i didn't expect that at all you know and so th- that was it's always fun to be surprised as a scientist, but that was really remarkably surprising. Um, and so I followed that up. So I looked at other po- human populations, data on other human populations. Um, we looked at we've we've done studies within groups, you know, within populations, the active people in a group versus the inactive people in a group. Um we've looked at data on exercise interventions where you take somebody who's sedentary and you get them exercising. We've looked at this with uh, mice and with birds and other species. And again and again, we get the same result, which is this. If you look at people who are or people who are sedentary versus active, there's not as much of a difference there in energy expenditure as you'd expect from how much exercise the active people are doing, right? In other words, they're exercising maybe 200, 300 calories a day on average, kilocalories a day. But we're only seeing, maybe we're not seeing any difference at all in their energy expenditure, or if we do, it, it's, it's tiny compared to what we'd expect from their activity levels. And so what that says to me as a biologist is that your body is actually working to constrain how many calories you're burning every day. That your body is adjusting to activity levels to kind of, to tamp that down and keep your energy expenditure within a pretty narrow range. Um, and that's the constrained energy uh, hypothesis. That is the, uh, that as you're, you get more and more physically active, your body adjusts, spends less energy on other tasks, and keeps total energy expenditure within a pretty narrow band.
0: Yeah, it seems like, it, it, and where you go in further in the book, is that there's kind of like this almost species-specific but still persistent like metabolic scope that yep. there's a band in which different species live in. And trying to yep. go outside of that for a long period of time is incompatible with long term with life.
1: You know. You know. Yeah, that's finisher. right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, if you you can you can push it for a, I mean, you know, the Tour de France, right? The Tour de France just mm. wrapped up a few weeks ago. Those guys were not within any kind of normal human range of expenditure. You know, not not forever. You can't do that forever. Sure. Um, you know, Kona triathlon, uh, Western States. You know, hundred. Hundred mile ultimate you, you can do these things. We we measured people who ran a marathon a day from Los Angeles to Washington D.C. in one of our mm-hmm. studies. You, you can you can push that limit, right? You can extend it for a bit, but not forever. Your body will eventually bring you down. Uh, you'll you'll stop either because you get injured or because you just wear out or whatever, and you'll you'll be brought back down into that kind of narrow band.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's kind of where people, you know, they're going to push back a little bit. They say, "So wait, you're saying." that if I do all of this exercise, all of this extra activity, my total daily energy expenditure is not going to really move that much. And, yeah. and there's just a little more nuance there is like, well, how much exercise are you going to do? Because if you're talking about a tour de France type effort, or ultra endurance type training, that's sure. not really what you're talking about. But the normal range of sustainable human activity, which for some of us is like fairly active, yeah, um, you know, yeah, it's probably not going to be as high as you think it is.
1: That's right, and um, and people also get th- get this piece of it wrong, which reflects me not phrasing it, you know, not articulating it well enough. So I, this is on me. But you know, people take that to mean um, that day to day energy expenditure doesn't change. They say, "Are you telling me that I worked out today and tomorrow's a rest day, and I'm going to have the same expenditure both days?" No, 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 no. That's not the point. The point is your body is is adjusting. It looks like sort of what's happening in the background and it's adjusting to what it takes as your average amount of exercise and and so you know yeah you'll still have big days and small days but that kind of background expenditure will either be higher or lower depending on how active you are if you're really active it'll be adjusted down to make room for that activity on average sort of over you know you got to think of this over sort of week-long or even longer time horizons
0: Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that there are probably multiple redundant sort of mechanisms to adjust energy expenditure to, again, make sure that we are able to reproduce and carry on our lineage. Um, So if you had to summarize the data regarding the effect of exercise, so just formalized physical activity that's purpose-driven and Mm -hmm. its effect on total daily energy expenditure, how would you explain that? I know you do it in the
1: book, but, you know, if people don't get that far. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um – when people start exercising, they start a new exercise program, um, at first, right before your body adjusts, then the additive model works great. And for those first few weeks, you are burning calories just like you'd expect if uh, from a calorie calculator. But over time, what happens is your body adjusts and, you know, we're, we're trying to pin down this number now, but somewhere around half of the energy that you're spending on the exercise, maybe even more, maybe closer to 100% over a long enough period of time, your body will adjust. And and now you're not burning more calories anymore than you were before you started the exercise program. So there are some really nice studies that show this. Um, the Midwest exercise, uh, studies are a great example of this. They, they took, um, I think 30 or 40 men and women put them in an exercise program for 16 months. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it supervised exercise. So they were watching them do their exercises every week and their energy expenditures at the beginning. Total daily energy expenditures measured with doubly labeled water, the the gold standard for this, calories a day, was no different at 16 months after they've been doing all these exercise for 16 months, as it was in the beginning. Um, And then they followed this up with with Midwest two, and Mm -hmm. uh, did more exercise intervention, and they showed some smaller. They they showed some effect at 10 months of exercise on total energy expenditure, but it wasn't what you. It wasn't as much as you'd predict. Um, and about half the people showed no response at all in energy expenditure. They, they were the quote unquote non responders, right? Um, I- uh, and so you know that's that's kind of typical of the studies that have actually measured energy expenditures. Is that you see that kind of of tamping down of the of expenditure to meet to get you back closer to baseline after after a few months? Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so that's that's what happens now. Midwest One and Midwest Two are also great examples of how important it is to exercise anyway, okay, mm-hmm. because they showed really important positive effects on things like blood glucose levels, things like, you know, all, all your measures of cardiometabolic health and disease. Um, it was really good for those people to be exercising. Uh, they did lose a bit of weight, not much, but they lost some weight, especially at the beginning before their, as their bodies were adjusting, uh, and that weight loss is, is good for them. Uh, you know, the, the, their cardiovascular fitness went up, VO2 went up, you know, VO2 max went up. So all these measures of health improved, absolutely important exercise is really, really important. I want to make sure that we emphasize that right. it just didn't have the effect that we would have expected on total energy expenditure and, and maybe as much as we'd expect on weight loss, uh, weight loss is pretty minimal. So, um, so yeah, that, that's the kind of thing you can expect if you start an exercise program. And you should still absolutely do it. It just doesn't. Um, it just doesn't work the way you think it does.
0: Yeah, it, it does seem like uh, one of the bigger criticisms that you would likely get from this is that people would then jump to the the conclusion. Well, Ponzer is saying just don't exercise because it may not be oh my super God. useful to help you lose weight and it may not yeah. increase your energy expenditure as much as we would predict. But that's not. I mean, that's not the impression I got at all. <laughs>
1: This is why, uh, this is why scientists always hate journalists, which is that, you know, if you read my work, um, if you read my work, the, the, the clickbait title for your story, if you're going to, if you're a journalist, the clickbait title is don't bother exercising or scientists say exercise doesn't matter. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh God, my God, that's so frustrating. And you know, if you're me and you like talking to people and you like talking about science then you, that you just take your lumps and that's life and you're gonna get misquoted mis, you know, or whatever. Um, but no, that's not what we're saying at all. Exercise is super important. But what's really cool about this actually, I think, is that it's it exercise is important in this way that we hadn't appreciated before. Because mm-hmm. that metabolic adjustment that you make, right, is actually probably, we're pinning this down now with work right now, we think this is the reason that exercise is is so good for you. That those adjustments you make, you know, if you're spending less on those kind of background processes to make room for that exercise, well, what are you spending less energy on? Well, you're spending less energy on inflammation. It looks like because mm-hmm. inflammation levels go down. It looks like you're spending less energy on stress. Right? Cortisol levels, epinephrine levels over the course of a day are reduced for people who exercise. Um, it gets your hor- your reproductive hormone levels in a probably in a healthier place. Uh, and we know that exercise is a really important protective factor against reproductive cancers. So, um, so those adjustments—it's it, it, hard to explain. It's hard to make sense of those adjustments without kind of understanding these energy trade-offs. So, I think that the energy trade-off model, the constrained model, helps under helps us understand those phenomena. And now we're trying to track down exactly at the cellular level how that all, how those switches all get switched. Um, but we we think this is a really important reason that exercise is so good.
0: Yeah. That's what well, I, I, I'm not sure which of the paper, your published papers that I was reading where you had mentioned the inflammatory, the you know hmm. inflammatory processes being like hmm. having a less available energy to like run amok. Uh, yeah. and I go, huh, interesting. Maybe that's one of the actual processes by which exercise becomes so health promoting independent yeah. of some of the other things in general, we think exercise, weight loss, body weight regulation, like excellent, but there's yeah. a host of other health promoting processes that occur independent of weight loss, and I think, yeah, if you could put a caveat or a buy a, a sub you know subtext on your, you know whatever the the journalist writes about burn, right. what you said <laughs> they'd be like, you should exercise anyway though regardless of what it does. You yeah, know, for
1: yeah, I, for what it's worth, I say that to every journalist I talk to. So yeah, if you're listening to this and you go and check out any any of the public treatment of of my work. Uh, you can grade the journalist on whether or not they included that in in the story. Because I always say (laughs) they don't always include it.
0: Right. Yeah. Just try to get you off the hook. Uh, How was was Twitter when you published Burn? Were people, I mean...
1: Oh, I mean, you know, um, wonderful and horrible. You know, isn't that what social media is? It's this dystopian future where you, you know... It's like the monkey's paw where you're like i wish i could tell this to the world you know you can imagine yourself before social media kind of got all this important stuff i'd like to say i wish i could tell the world and it's right. like oh really <laughs> <laughs> is that really what you'd like <laughs> um and so you know for somebody again as a scientist who likes to talk to people and likes to talk science uh twitter is amazing because you can you can talk about whatever new scientists science you've done and and if people are excited about it then you know that's wonderful Mm -hmm. But it also, you know, of course, the troll armies are all out there. Uh, So it's been so I've had two reactions that I think are frustrating for me. One is um, people who just don't want to believe that exercise isn't the best tool for weight loss. And they really hate the message from the book on this, which isn't just my message. It's the message from a lot of scientists over decades, which is that diet is a much better tool for managing weight. Uh exercise can have some benefits around the edges. It can help you keep weight off if you lose it, but diet's way better as a tool. And Mm -hmm. and you know, the constrained energy model helps explain why. Um so that's been frustrating. And some of those are colleagues of mine who work in exercise research and they feel like I'm attacking them or something like that. And and that misunderstanding hurts me. Yeah, I I don't I'm not I'm not trying to downplay their research or the importance of it. Um you know so anyway that's that's frustrating um the other f- frustrating thing is the low carb low low carb high fat folks the keto the keto bros uh if that's a demographic i think that's a demographic right i think that's yeah. on the new census data new census data is out and keto bros no are sense. way up yeah uh <laughs> 100% <laughs> <laughs> um you know look as i say in the book all diets for weight loss work the same way. And they work by cutting how many calories you eat um, and making the calories you eat less than the calories you burn. And that should not be controversial. The fact that that's controversial only tells you how backwards the diet industry has gotten itself and how twisted to knots it's gotten. Um, Keto diets and low carb diets in general, they work really well for some people. And I've I've never said don't do it what I've said is it works the same way as other diets work, which is it it cuts how many calories you eat. Because guess what? It's actually hard to overeat. Um, Your brain will feel you, you will tell you that you're full and done if you take half the menu away, right? You you Mm -hmm. can't overeat. And this is true about any kind of diet. If you only eat potatoes, this has been done and I'm not recommending this, but people, if you only eat potatoes, you will lose weight like crazy. All it is is starch, mm-hmm. but you lose weight like crazy because you're, you, you. How many potatoes can you eat before you go? I'm done with potatoes, right? Yeah. How much steak? I love steak too. How much steak can you eat before you're like, yeah, I'm full, I'm done. Mm-hmm. And there's and there's no dessert course, right? There's no ice cream because you're low carb. Good for you. That's great. So, uh, so you know, um, yeah, and, and they feel well. There are people whose entire livelihoods, especially in the weird fad diet world their entire livelihoods are based on keto and so any attack on that uh is an attack on them and and, and then, you know what good for them because if you're selling fad diet charlatan stuff then you deserve to be attacked that that's not good science i'm sorry and if you are out there listening and you're on a keto diet and it's working for you fantastic nobody's happier for you than me but th- there's no mat. there's no magic it's it's you're cutting calories.
0: Yeah. You've effectively changed the food environment enough to gain control over this appetite satiety relationship and there, and now are eating in either a calorie deficit, energy balance deficit, if you're losing weight
1: Mm -hmm. or
0: you've now lost the weight and are maintaining a new, healthier, more appropriate energy energy reserve. Um, that's right. Yeah. So it's very interesting stuff. I, I would imagine, you know, the interesting thing is if you were I scoped your Instagram as well, and I was like, "All right, good. He's no. not really on Instagram like as not much. much. Safe." So, Instagram. It, here's the spectrum. YouTube's the worst place, at, except, for <laughs> maybe, except for maybe yeah. TikTok. Now it's just like TikTok may be worse than wow. YouTube. Then it's Instagram, and Twitter is interesting because you do have a lot of academics and actual professionals on there. Right. And so, so we have people who have huge Instagram followings, huge YouTube followings, who will post yeah. just nonsense over and over and over again. And on those platforms, they get all this positive, like social credit from people who don't know anything, you know, but are right. excited about the content. But then on Twitter, yeah. they'll post the same thing and just get hammered by actual <laughs> professionals. And it's just so interesting to yeah. see this. I'm like, if people just came over to Twitter a little bit more often.
1: That's uh, interesting. Yeah. I, I think it's the visual versus the text, right? I mean, because Twitter mm-hmm. is real; you can put, put pictures on Twitter, but mostly it's, it's words. Um, and Instagram's the opposite. And, uh, mm-hmm. I love Instagram to scroll through, but whenever I want to say something on Instagram, I'm like, huh, I wish I had a pretty picture for this. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You'll you have know, to hire a photographer. Uh, yeah. so, but so I, I think it's easy to kind of, um, yeah, be visually interesting and, and compelling and be kind of light on the details on, on Instagram would be my guess. That yeah. would be my guess.
0: And then TikTok's directly related to your dance skills, I, th- I guess, <laughs> or, right. or choreography. Right. yeah. Um, Getting back to the constrained energy model, so I think we have a good understanding uh, in this podcast, at least about what it is and kind of what its findings are. Um, two interesting questions. The first one I'll lead off with, uh, on the um, the, NI, the NIH's website, they have this body weight sort of oh, yeah. uh, calculator, like how mm-hmm. many calories are you going to need? And there's like expert yeah. mode and you can plug in all this data. One interesting feature of that that i wanted to get your your opinion on is they have this physical activity level sort of mm, modifier mm-hmm. effectively you yeah. plug in a value based on your current activity level to mo- yeah. and it multiplies by your bmr yeah i um have been telling people and you can just we'll put this on the podcast i've sure. been telling people to just pick you know either lightly active or moderately active, and just leave yeah. it as just a hedge. Yeah. Like you're probably somewhere in this range, uh, but I don't think that there are people who are sustaining this extreme level yeah, uh, of activity. Yeah. Well, right. So, just <laughs> but what do you? How do you? What do you? How would you modify that formula if if you could?
1: Yeah. So that calculator was developed largely by my good friend and colleague and extremely smart guy, Kevin Hall. He's wonderful, and he is no, you know it's it, that is no fluff that is real uh, hard nutrition science right there so it's fantastic the one thing that he and i disagree with is the value of putting that physical activity modifier in i would just say keep it at 1.7 maybe 1.8 and you're probably as accurate as you'll ever be um and yeah that i that's what i would say about that um i don't think kevin disagrees but i think he would want to have some input about lifestyle on there there's some, you know, lifestyle can have a tiny effect, but it just isn't as big as people think. So people think, oh, I exercise all the time. I'm going to, you know, and it's going to be a ratio of two or 2.1, you know, to yeah. your BMR. Nope, almost surely not. So, um, so yeah, that's what I was, I think your, your advice is, is pretty good. You know, keep it at that moderate activity level and, and just kind of ignore that piece of it. Let the record show Dr. Ponzer agrees with me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah it's, I think a lot of that had to do with probably occupational e- energy, uh, occupational activity that has you know, changed over the years. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're a jute mill what? worker and you're
1: active will, all day. <laughs> I will tell you that comes directly from the additive model. And, and it's because so what happened was in after World War II, There was a renewed interest in trying to understand nutritional needs and this is uh, you know in the aftermath of all these horrors of war of course you know the holocaust of course but also you know other pow situations other starving populations and there was really well-intentioned science applied science and nutrition behind trying to understand what people need to survive and how to keep people fed Really important work, and but they didn't have; they had no technique. There was no method available on how to measure total energy expenditure over 24 hours, you know, mm-hmm. outside of a laboratory. If you had somebody in a laboratory, yeah, you could do it. But any but normal daily life, you couldn't. And so that's when this um, physical activity ratio additive model stuff developed, and we've just accepted it. It was the best you could do at the time. Um, we've moved on beyond that. Actually, now we know that we know better. But uh, you know, old habits die hard. So people sure, still yeah. have these in their calculators. Uh, a, a
0: kind of a, a spinoff of that. It's this new paper by Willis et al uh, oh, yeah. titled physical, physical activity and total daily energy expenditure in older U.S. adults. Mm-hmm. Um, seemingly found that when individuals uh, increase their exercise, their physical activity, but where we're eating a surplus of calories, although I would actually probably yeah. say more maintenance level because they weren't losing weight, by def- or they right. weren't gaining weight rather, um, that the, the most appropriate model was this additive model. That's kind of yeah. one of the conclusions the authors yeah. came to. And mm-hmm. if they were in a negative energy balance so and were actually losing weight, it kind of more approached this constrained model. Um, yeah. Do you you feel like that is included in your constrained energy model or that's more of like an added bit of
1: nuance? Yeah. So I'm on that paper, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this is part of being a scientist is do you hide from data that don't, you know, screamingly support your model? Or do you say, yeah, things are this. Is, these are the data. And, you know, we'll look at the accumulated evidence. I um, I know Eric Willis, who, who did that study. Well, we talked a lot about the data. and He invited me to come on and, and help look at the data with him, which was awesome. Um, yeah, you're right. In that sample of those adults, those older adults, it, the additive model seems to do a better job predicting. Um, I, I still think the constrained model, so for example, if you look at people who have, who have very low energy expenditures in that, in that study, like zero, <laughs> um, their, to, their daily energy expenditures are higher, much higher than you'd expect from just their sort of basal metabolic rate plus digestion. So those people at the very low end are burning more energy than you'd expect from their physical activity. Um, and the it, an increase in total expenditure goes up more slowly than I think you'd expect with physical activity. So, mm-hmm. that's the caveat that that's, that's how I would interpret those data. But, you know, we'll see. And if over lots of more studies, I still think that the data are in my favor um, overall. But, but hey, well that, you know, this is science. We test it. So, we'll see.
0: Yeah. I think, you know, for people listening to this and they're like, wait it all doesn't just fit the the model. It's like, well, there's going to be inter-individual variation in how you respond to physical yeah. activity and your energy expenditure, particularly, yep. the t- and the time course is going to be super important, too. So if this study was carried out over longer periods of time, you might expect it to yeah. converge. And back So,
1: and, and one thing that they didn't have in that study was, your re- was resting metabolic rate measurements. Mm-hmm. They didn't yeah, have is- that. And so if they had that, you could see the people who are more physically active have reduced resting metabolic rates, which would be a, a prediction of the model, um, regardless of what the top line number of calories is doing. Uh, we don't have that. So, we won't. Know, we can't know that actually from that study. So, I, I call that study, I think it's important data. I'm glad they put it out. I was glad to be, you know, included in it. Um, and we'll see. I, it doesn't change my opinion of, of where the data sit overall. Yeah. Yeah, if there's a bunch
0: of other papers that come out kind of like that, then you're like, all right, we're missing, maybe missing yeah, something. Yeah, we're missing
1: something. Yep, yep.
0: yep. Um, one of the interesting sort of, I guess, end, end points of this constrained energy model that I'm fascinated by is this very high exercise volume, you know, sort of response um, mm. in that people can adjust down their total daily, their, their mm. other elements of energy expenditure to keep their TDEE down. And, but it seems like, this occurs if they're not able to eat enough food to like sustain their body weight and sustain that energy expenditure. Um, so there's like alimentary or, or gut, you know, yeah. limit to how much they can actually eat, which has this knock-on effect of mm-hmm. uh, regulating their energy expenditure. Um, you talk about that in the book a little bit, and you know, I want I don't I want to save some of that for people who haven't read your book, but how high of like exercise volumes are we talking like before you reach this this point where it's like you might not be able to eat enough to like sustain your
1: energy yeah so that's a different that's a slightly different piece of this this is if this this would be applicable to people who are you know um kind of in the elite level of of athletic you know in terms of training maybe you don't compete but you're doing that kind of workload weekly Mm -hmm. um this is going to be relevant for you uh we, we have data from really high-end, you know, really extreme events, uh, energy expenditure in those events, uh, like the Tour de France, like uh, Ironman triathlons, like ultramarathons, people doing Arctic trekking. And these folks that I talked about that ran from Los Angeles to D.C., I mean, you know, really high-end stuff, that, that there is this limit in how well your body can, can absorb calories, Right, so if you look at people in these in these uh, studies, like the Tour de France, like the, um, the people who ran from LA to DC, uh, first of all, let's talk about the, the metabolic ceiling. If you look at how long those events last and how high they were able to keep their metabolic rates, you see this sort of sloped ceiling. So you can, you know, it's 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 analogous to sprinting versus running marathons, right? You can keep mm-hmm. a really high expenditure for a couple of days. The the energy expenditure you can maintain for a month is going to be lower than that. The amount you can expa- you know maintain for three months is going to be lower than that. And so as you as you go longer and longer, that metabolic ceiling kind of gets lower and lower and crunches you down. Where where it levels out, where you we think that if you really push yourself, you could you could probably push up to this maximum level. That maximum level we think you could could maintain forever indefinitely is at about two and a half times your basal metabolic rate. Now, why do we say it that way? Well, because small people are going to have smaller systems, right? Smaller guts, smaller livers, big people are going to have bigger systems. And so if you're, and and basal metabolic rate kind of tracks that, how big your system is, right? So it's going to be size adjusted for somebody, uh, my size, I'm about six feet, 165 pounds, my limit would be something like 4,500 calories a day. That'd be about two and a half times my basal metabolic rate. So, um, and what we think is if you go above that, your body actually can't get energy in fast enough to replenish what you burned that day. Mm-hmm. And so you can do that for a while and you'll lose weight while you're doing it, but your body, you can't lose weight forever, obviously. And so you the, the, the term love, uh, limit is about two and a half times basal metabolic rate um and we're doing some testing now to see if that holds with you know with ultra marathon athletes and that kind of stuff because we're curious if that's if, if that result that we got from this kind of statistical analysis of people in these extreme events holds up when we look individually and see if we can track people and see if that that really does work for them um but right now that's my that's the current hypothesis
0: yeah yeah, it's just really interesting to me, uh, particularly coming from a sports nutrition, like sort right. of, uh, background, where it's like one of the one of the big drivers of these, particularly in extended events, is how fast can you get food in, and how well does yeah. your gut tolerate it without getting sick? And so there's yeah. this huge inter individual like variation, and then I'm like, oh wait, if there's a limit
1: here too. That's a whole another
0: piece that we didn't even yeah. really consider. Uh, that's right. Isn't
1: the tour de France called like a, you know, a month long eating contest on bikes that that's yeah. what, uh, yeah. and I, I think that's, I think that's probably pretty accurate. Well, and you must see this a lot because you know, in, in sports nutrition, it's a kind of a, a specialized part of the nutrition spectrum, as you know, and you're mm-hmm. dealing with people who are pushing their bodies in interesting ways. Um, another piece of the constrained energy model that I think is relevant here is that if you're doing lots and lots of exercise and, you're taking energy away from other tasks and there's some limit to how much energy you can put in at some point, you're going to get to this sort of overtraining space or reds, right? right? would reduce energy deficit syndrome. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not because, you know, you don't have enough power bars and the Gatorade. <laughs> it's because you, you just can't put the energy in fast enough. So exercise is taking too big of a share Right, and it's leaving not enough for immune system and other stuff. Um, so, is that is that an experience that you've had with your with people you've worked with?
0: Yeah, r- relatively, we're we're more in the just the bulk of the people we work with end up being in strength sports. And so to the extent overtraining syndrome exists in strength sports, it's never been described in the literature. Like Hmm. people have have tried, like, look, you're going to max out on squat and bench press every day for the next 12 weeks. And we're going to try to overtrain you. And it turns out they just get stronger. Uh, Like the the ones who, who, can you know sustain
1: that right. and not get injured
0: so if you call yeah. injury because the calorie
1: workload is not enough is that the idea because i mean you know yeah. y- your exactly. muscles will fatigue before you actually burn that many calories
0: exactly yep yeah. yeah you don't yeah the energy expenditure during resistance training is just a very it's very low and so when people are like how many carbs do i need to like replenish and it's like just not that much like a couple yeah. sticks of gum you know <laughs> eat, your, right. eat your protein for most people yeah. obviously high volume training is is different but we see yeah. it a lot in. Um, uh, weight class sports particularly people who are mm-hmm. like actively trying to lose weight and reduce body fat to be more competitive that, uh, yeah. physique sports at very low body fat levels and then there's this interesting interplay in men who have very high training volumes uh, like in the crossfit space uh, mm-hmm. who are also very lean and just you know they're training two or three times a day um, there's like there's reds on the one side so people are symptomatic and having all these uh, you know sort of Issues with regulating their endocrine system, their right. uh, immune system, you know, their and psychologically, and then there's this condition called exercise hypogonadal condition of the male. Which oh yeah, just yep. an isolated endocrine issue, but no like real symptoms. And so you're like, well, wait, which one is pathological, or both pathological? Yeah. Are they both? Is this like a transient thing that people like yeah. go into reds? Is it kind of yeah. like MH? Anyway, so it's fascinating to me. But in general, yeah, you know, when people try to sustain these very high workloads, particularly at very very low body fats, um, which is regulating their energy intake, um, yeah, it can be difficult. Thankfully, I don't see it too much because trying to get people to change their behavior, particularly in this space, is right. difficult because they're like, "I got to win. I have this this set window of where I can be competitive in my life in this particular yeah. endeavor." Right. Uh, so, what do you what are you tell me? And I'm like, "Well, yeah." <laughs>
1: Well, the, the hypogonadal condition is interesting. I think it's a really nice example of, of, you know, pushing exercise too far, and exactly what this energy trade-off thing would predict, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Anthony Hackney, who's done a lot of work in this with men, uh, low testosterone levels, and especially in endurance athletes, um, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's, it's. I think it speaks to how we talk about what's normal. And mm-hmm. we talk about what human physiology is and when it's pathological, we talk about a binary between, Oh, you're healthy or you're sick. And you know, human physiology rarely works like that. A, a spe- mm-hmm. I mean, okay. Infectious disease, that's a different thing. You Either are infected or you're not, but non, sure. non-infectious disease, non-infectious issues. It's a spectrum. If you are, um, you know, the more exercise, you if, you, if you're completely sedentary, your body's burning all this energy on stuff like inflammation that it shouldn't do, you start exercising and you take energy away from that and that's healthy, you exercise too much and you take too much energy away from those tasks and now you're sick, right? So, it's a spectrum and there isn't going to be a hard, clean, no, now you're sick, now you're healthy. You just have to think about it in this sort of trade-off spectrum way. I think that's more useful.
0: Yeah, no, I like that a lot. Um we were just, uh, we had a seminar this past weekend in in, uh, San Antonio, Texas, and one of the questions we got was about coronary artery calcium scoring, so CAC scoring. Mm -hmm. And how useful is this to predict atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk? Um, And it's interesting, the dichotomy between like you know, no, people who have normal levels of physical activity and those with very, very high levels of physical activity—so marathoners, ultra-marathoners, mm-hmm. people yeah. competing over three thousand, completing over three thousand met minutes of activity per week—their CAC scores are through the roof comparatively. Yeah. Very high, and yeah. people are like, "Wait, what?" It's like, well, they're not really at an increased risk of of cardiovascular disease. It's just right. what we're seeing is what some of these adaptive processes to yeah. that level of exercise volume, which is maybe it's at some level. Uh, related to the constrained energy model, like what it would predict. I'm sure on so if you go back far enough, right? Sure. You, you do your, <laughs> but, but yeah, it's just the body is very resilient and adaptable. And I think yeah. a lot of the things we see downstream, we try to make sense of without really knowing, you know, what does this whole spectrum yeah. look like? from?
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I would say this is also another reason that it's so fun to, to have walked into this space uh, as an evolutionary anthropologist because oh, sure. concepts sure. of what's normal physiology you know, what's a random sample of humans? Let me ask you, I don't know. It's, it's not the people that you're going to find in a gym. Those aren't random. It's not the average guy on the street because guess what? The average guy on the street is, you know, in this country, typical guy is, you know, American, first of all, and raised in this culture and in this food environment. Um, and that's not normal for humans at all. Normal for humans is hunting and gathering actually. So, you know, Mm -hmm. um, although it's not normal today, culturally across the world, that's physiologically what we're adapted to do. So um, yeah, I I think that was really a really fun part of writing the book. And just in my work in general is kind of pushing people to to rethink what's normal. And I think that's a useful exercise.
0: I like that. Uh, Just a quick comment on your latest paper, because I want people to go read this. Mm -hmm. Uh, if if they're not subscribed to science, you can, we'll put a link in the description below. This is a cool paper. Um, it's about daily energy expenditure through the human life course. Yeah. So, okay. One, where did all this data come from? And then what's your, what's your takeaway from this?
1: So this was a big collaborative effort, and I want to shout out John Speakman, who led the, the, the push to get all these labs to play together, in, including ours. So all the labs internationally that, that work with this method called doubly labeled water, which is the way that you measure 24-hour energy expenditures in people. Um, we all agreed to, to put our data into a central database, the DLW database, and you can check it out online if you want. Um, it's a freely available tool for scientists. Anyway we got now uh 6500 i think i think the latest version of it is 7000 people but the version in this paper had 6400 people um from 8 year 8 days old to in their 90s and we were able to measure energy expenditures from you know with the gold standard method and ask how does how does it change across your lifespan and the answer is well as you grow bigger you burn more energy because big people, big things burn more energy than small things. Okay. So we knew that, but we were able to really characterize that relationship really well so that we could ask the next question, which is after you account for body size, taking body size out of the equation, how do metabolic rates change? Um, and the answer is really cool because it turns out you're, when you're born, you know, babies are born like tiny adults in terms of their metabolisms, right? They look up like a piece of mom, which makes sense because that's where you've been. And then, um, but very quickly, your metabolic rate kind of kicks into gear and shoots up. And so, you know, yes, you're growing and getting bigger. But even in addition to that, you are burning more calories than you'd expect. And your cells are incredibly busy with growth and developmental processes. You peak out at about a year and then you slowly glide down to until you're 20 years old. So there's this really long elevated metabolic rate period that peaks in early childhood. And then you are rock stable from 20 to 60 years old. So, all these people, you know, uh, well, let me just finish this up. And then after 60, you're, you decline. So, it was really fun because I think people expected to see some age effects. The amount of age effects that we see are bigger than I would have expected. So, they're really dramatic actually. And they don't happen when you think they should, should happen. So, we don't see a, a puberty effect right? Mm-hmm. We don't see a menopause effect. We don't see, uh, oh, I hit my 30s and 40s and my metabolism is slowing down. That old, you know, that idea that's out there, like a lot of ideas about metabolism, they're just somehow out there in the ether, but aren't based on, on reality. Um, and so, yeah, so isn't that exciting and fun? And it's this sort of fundamental roadmap of how the body works over a lifetime that hasn't not at all been clear before. And so, to, to work on something that's that kind of basic is really fun.
0: Yeah, isn't it? It's wild to me because when I read the paper, uh, yeah. I was I was like, wait, does this not exist? Like, yeah. h- How are we this far along in, you know, we're talking about all these esoteric concepts, not concepts, yeah. but yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's all this stuff that seems far advanced other than the basic question. Like, hey, I wonder what the metabolic rate does throughout like life.
1: Like just Oh, a man, basic- I remember, you know, so when the Hadza stuff, when we first published the Hadza stuff, Uh, This is a hot hunter-gatherer energetic expenditure stuff. Um, We had to, of course, correct for body size in that analysis, right? Because they're a small statured folks. So, like, you know, average height for men is like five and a half feet. So, they're, you know, you have to correct for body size, obviously, to make it an apples-to-apples comparison. And so, I was kind of new to this sort of work. I had done um, walking and running energetics before. I had done stuff across species. But I hadn't done human total daily energy expenditures before that work. And so I was collaborating with really great people in the space, Bill Wong. And, and I said, guys, how, how do we, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a biologist. I know you have to correct for body size. I do this in my other work all the time. It, for this work, what's the best way to do it? And there was actually no, uh, consensus on the best way to correct for body size on the best way to correct for age. Right. And I, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. And so, um, I'm as a, that was my astonishment, the same as yours astonishment was reading this paper. And the answer is we really didn't have a good idea about how it worked. Uh, we knew the basics. We knew big people burn more calories than small people, right? Yeah. We thought there probably was an age effect, but to really characterize it and get the roadmap, that's like saying, well, I think, you know, I, I think that Pennsylvania is somewhere North of me. And I think that, you know, Japan is West if I go far enough. Like, okay, yeah, that's true. Not super useful. So, yeah. you know, this is like a real roadmap with actual, the, the details laid out.
0: Yeah. We're going to have to update all the nutrition texts, the metabolism sections. It's going to be like the third or fourth sentence. And here's in general <laughs> what metabolism does throughout the lifetime. And there'll be a yeah. chart. But it, yeah, cool. until now, until now, yeah, people were just kind of guessing, maybe not too inaccurately, but like, where was the reference? Yeah. And then how do we kind of come to the soap?
1: Here's one thing that you, anybody who's listening here can, can think about that's, this is a, will we'll, the test, if the people you're talking to about metabolism know about this work or have taken this on board, if they divide calories by kilograms or calories per pound, and they use that as a way to correct for size, quote unquote, you know that they don't know what they're talking about because it's not that Ooh. simple. It's not, it's not a one-to-one relationship. That's one of the things that we were able to show when you correct for body size, when you show the body size versus expenditure relationship, it's not one-to-one. It's a curved relationship. There's this thing in biology called Kleiber's Law, which is this relationship between expenditure and body size across species. Within humans, we kind of fit that same kind of curvature. Um, Point being... People who are very different in body size will inherently have, just by having differences in body size, will inherently have a different ratio of energy to, to pounds or energy to kilograms. And so, if you think that you've a corrected for size with that simple ratio, then you don't know what you're talking about. Sorry. doesn't work that way. Gauntlet thrown, shots fired.
0: Boom. Which <laughs> – which- <laughs> leads us to the perfect way to wrap this up. All right. So people are are offended by that. If they feel triggered, how can people interact with you on the
1: internet? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, please do because you know, um, it's, it's conversations are sad when it's only one person. So I'm always happy to talk (laughs) science and I really have fun with this and I hope people do too. On Twitter is the easiest way to get me on social media. Um, you can find me in my lab at Duke online. Um, and of course, I hope they'll read the book, Burn. I, a lot of this stuff is, is in there. And it's my it's my plea to the world to please understand how human metabolism actually works. And then you, it's it's not a diet book. It's not an exercise book. It's a how does your body work book. And I hope people will take that and, and run with it.
0: 10 out of 10 would recommend. We'll put links to the book and his social media platforms in the description below. Dr. Ponzer, thank you so much for coming on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. Thanks. Anytime. All right. That's a wrap on episode 151 with Dr. Herman Ponzer. A big shout out to him for coming on our podcast. Really enjoyed our chat. I've linked. Uh, his book in the show notes as well as uh, the papers that we discussed in this podcast all of those are in the show notes so check those out and uh, hey before you go anywhere leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can bring you the latest nuance in health and fitness thanks for spending your time with us we'll see you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast see you